Welcome back to Crypto Coffee Hour. I'm your host, Jeff, here with my co-host, Will. Hey, listeners. Welcome back. Uh, so this time, we're going to talk a little bit about you know using your crypto assets on the different decentralized exchanges and kind of diving into DeFi itself. You know, is that is that what they call yield farming, Jeff? I mean, I hear that term thrown around a lot. Um, yeah, so yield farming. You know, you're going to hear yeah. terms like staking, yield farming, liquidity providing, you know, liquidity pools, um, and they all they're all related, and they all kind of relate to this overarching theme of DeFi. Um, and so, I think we should first start with what DeFi stands for. You know, um, it's short for decentralized finance. And essentially, it's a bunch of applications run on top of these networks that allow users to kind of do all the things that banks traditionally had access to. You know, you can put your assets and lend them out, for example. You can uh, earn fees for providing your assets as liquidity in decentralized exchanges. You know, all these different things, you know, you can put your assets to work and have them generate some sort of yield for you. Cool. So, Jeff, I'm uh, actually super excited about this topic. Um, you know me, like from the first uh, episode, I talked a lot, I emphasized a lot on this decentralized nature of this uh, industry. And coming from traditional finance, DeFi is very exciting for me because it basically, and I was very suspicious in the beginning, it basically takes away the need for a central uh, uh, clearing figure, i.e. a bank. Um, and decentralized finance, the way I look at it, and having played in this, Jeff is obviously much more expert at this, but having played in this field for a little bit, um, the sense I get, Jeff, is that it's a new way of kind of banking. It's a new way of getting returns, uh, generating returns on the assets that you hold. Uh, but because it's in this new ecosystem, um, the yields are higher uh, and there's new ways of playing around. Uh, just new, more Lego blocks. I think you used that analogy before. More Lego blocks to build. And so you can come up with uh, some similar products to um, traditional finance. But then you can also come up with kind of new ways of playing, like you were saying, liquidity mining, uh, staking. These are all concepts that don't exist in the uh, uh, traditional finance. So, yeah, I mean, um, I'll, I'll let Jeff continue. But I just wanted to, um, you know, kind of I, I think I'll actually quite learn quite a bit through this uh, through this um, method as well. So uh, take it away, Jeff. <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, if we are looking at just how to get yield from your asset, right, as a basic function of DeFi, you know, we kind of have different, uh, a couple different categories. So the first we would just call staking, kind of broadly. Um, and you know, what? usually what staking refers to is you take an asset and you use that some in, as some way to secure the network. You may have heard about um, Ethereum switching from proof of work to proof of stake soon as the way to secure its network. What that essentially means is anybody that has 32 Ethereum can run a node and lock in their 32 Ethereum. Essentially, that proves that you know they have skin in the game and they are validating all the transaction truth truthfully um, and keeping the network secure. When you do that, you're you know you're paid a fee for providing the service by the network, and that's kind of a way for you to uh, to uh, earn some money off these assets. Now, different networks are going to have different you know requirements for staking. Some like Luna 
when you lock it in, they'll have a 21-day uh, kind of freeze period where you're trying to withdraw it. So you can't just withdraw it at will and, you know, sell your Luna. you got to wait the 21 days. Um, so maybe just um, uh, for some of our listeners, we, uh, we discussed proof of stake, um, difference between proof of stake, or maybe we touched on it, we brushed up on it, uh, brushed up against it um, in one of our earlier episodes talking about proof of work and proof of stake. And so today uh, we're going to spend a little bit more time and I think Jeff just um, went through a very nice summary of proof of stake because that is where some of this additional yield uh, is being generated um, in this kind of new ecosystem. It doesn't exist in traditional finance because there is no concept of proof of stake in traditional finance. So um, real briefly, and Jeff can correct me if I miss the details, but proof of work is kind of on its way out. Is that fair to say, um, Jeff? Because it's so sure. eco unfriendly. I mean, it'll never, yeah. it'll never fully, it'll never fully leave because Bitcoin is always going to be proof of work. So mm -hmm. as long as Bitcoin exists, proof of work is going to exist. But, so, but let's know, just as, as fast far as forward. Ethereum to, goes as far as yeah. like these other networks go. You know, they're shifting more and more away from proof of work to uh, proof of stake or, you know, some of these more novel other kind of uh, proof of networks. You know, I've heard of like proof of history, proof of, you know, I can't even remember. There's all sorts of different ones people are trying out. What, one but, of the yeah. analogies, one of the analogies I was given, um, and again, I can't take credit for this, but it's like proof of work is you make, you know, let's say you make like 100 runners, everybody run a marathon. And then at the end, you kind of only give the award to that one guy who finishes at the end uh, or who finishes first. But then proof of stake is just like, dude, why, you know, expend all this energy, you know, tire everybody out. Let's just pick out of these 100 runners one guy. OK, and he'll just like run, run one lap around the, um, you know, the track. And then we just give the award to him. And then uh, it's kind of we're saving. So we save like 99.9 .9 energy. But um, the way the, the mathematics of it works, the incentive structure is such that it's just as secure, if not more secure, using the second methodology. Um, how do you feel about that kind of um, I analogy? A, I think that's a fair analogy, you know. Um, ultimately, there's trade-offs, right? People that are especially Bitcoin maximalists will say, like, you know, nothing is as secure as proof of work. You know, nothing, um, you know, also that the fact that the proof of work gives value to the asset because it's directly trading energy to produce the asset, right? There's like a direct correlation of things being mm. spent to create the Bitcoin. Mm, but, you know, I those see. criticisms may or may not be fair. Like the fact is, you know, more and more networks are moving away from proof of work and towards proof of stake. And for the user, that's good because now more of your assets can be used to create yourself, you know, a nice little yield. Like it's nothing crazy in the in the world of DeFi where some of the yields are just really mind boggling. But um, you know, with Ethereum, you can get like I think six percent, five percent right now to stake your Ether on ETH two point oh or using some of the liquid staking options like Lido um, mm. to stake your ETH and also kind of use your ETH at the same time. You know, you'll earn like a modest yield on it in native Ethereum too. So you know, your if the value of Ethereum goes up your yield is also going up exponentially in terms of mm. U.S. dollar value. So if um, we had stuck with the proof of work concept, uh, there wouldn't be this um, idea of staking yield. We would only be able to earn yield through, you know, actually being a miner ourselves. We would need to go buy the, buy the mining equipment, you know, find a cheap source of electricity. Is that fair to say? Like proof of 
stake has created this new way for participants like us to delegate our tokens to people who then are stakers. Yeah, and definitely. So- like definitely the whole idea of blockchain was to have, you know, everybody be able to run servers and run nodes. But obviously, as the cost of hardware has gone up, you know, like an ant miner to mine Bitcoin, I think is something like $15,000 or something. That's not exactly something the average person can get started with doing. So proof of stake lets, you know, the more smaller investor, you know, put their tokens and have some skin in the game and be rewarded for helping secure the network as well. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So, um, so that's, that's staking yield. Um, what are some, you mentioned five, 8% on, uh, on Ethereum. What is the yield on some of these other coins and what drives the differences? So these other yields, you know, um, a lot of them are going to come from, um, you know, trading fees that these different market makers have when they uh, when they capture um, trading activity. You know, when you provide liquidity for a decentralized exchange, every trade of that asset that you're providing liquidity for is taking in a small fee that gets distributed to all the liquidity providers in that pool. So. When you're doing something like that in the DeFi space, you know, you're capturing trading fees directly. Now, one of the great things about DeFi, like we've talked about that concept of money Lego blocks so many times because that's truly um, what it is. Like all these different protocols can be used and built on top of each other and used together to generate more yields. You know, you can combine them to create different yield strategies. Uh, so, for example, you know, like the easiest level of yield is probably the staked ether, you know, or in other system, other uh, ecosystems like Luna, like staked Luna or staked Avalanche. Yeah, for um, example, right now it. I see, uh, you know, right now, for example, uh, Axie Infinity, um, AXS, that's mm-hmm. a, um, a token that's become quite a coin that's become very popular, um, you know, because of the meta concept. And it is currently, if you stake it, at least on Binance, it's giving you something like 115% APY. So, yeah. so that, those, those staking yeah, do, percentages are a little different, right? So when you're staking something like Axie, you're not exactly securing the network. Um, it's almost like an incentive for you to just hold, have the coins. It's like a, a reason for the coins to um, be useful. Like it gives it its utility for you to hold. Oh, wait, hang on. So that actually, that 115% doesn't come from the economics of staking it's not well it does so this is why staking is kind of a broad brush right Mm. like on some things when you're on a protocol level like ethereum and luna when you stake those it's to you know secure the network directly and those are often kind of illiquid you know when you stake ether especially right now when you stake ether onto eth 2.0 you migrate your ether over and your ether is effectively locked until Ethereum 2.0 merges with the current main chain. And, you know, that's not stated, slated to happen until sometime in 2022. Um, now, those kind of things, you know, they're more liquid, so they give the network more security. Versus something like Axie Infinity, where, where it has, you know, you stake it on the platform and it gives you just coins as an emission right away. That's less to secure the network because it's already utilizing the... Um, the security of Ethereum, 
It's more just so the token has utility, you know, just so as a buyer, as a holder, it gives you a reason not to just sell it because it's generating you more money. Okay, so that sounds a little bit inflationary. It is. Um, it's, it's very inflationary. <laughs> I mean, that's why these tokenomics of these coins, you have to kind of study carefully because a lot of them, you might say, okay, this is great. You know, I can buy this coin and I stake it and it just gives me like a thousand percent APY or something crazy. But a lot of the times it's like, it's very inflationary. You know, the coin is just making more and more and more of those coins. So you have to really look at the tokenomics and understand how the coins are being distributed, what other utility and value the coins have that when you just receive them, you're not just incentivized to sell it right away. Um, you know, so all these things, you know, as you kind of delve more into crypto, you'll kind of get a bit, you'll kind of get a like a more developed nuanced feel for how these things kind of should be. But for some reason, for example, um, the tokenomics of Axie, and I'm just going using that as an example. There are other um, kind of coins that have that same uh, idea behind it. They want to use the high yield to incentivize people to hold on to it. But if ultimately the coin can't be put into use, right, or if the coin doesn't have a real utility behind it, then it's just printing more of a coin that has, you know, no marginal benefit. Um, and you I think that happens all the time. You know, you see a lot of coins that that have that kind of chart price history where, you know, they get an exciting like launch and everyone wants in because they want all those rewards and all those incentives to stake the coin, but the coin doesn't do anything else. And you just see the price just go down continually over time as everyone just rushes to sell every, uh, all the rewards as they're getting them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So again, for um, maybe more traditional investors uh, who are listening in, uh, I would say that, um, you know, sometimes when we buy a bond or a stock, we look at dividend yield or the coupon. Um, but of course, we have to be aware that um, in this case, the, the additional yield uh, isn't necessarily being generated from the cash flow of the company. Um, it could just be uh, printing more of the same coin. And we have to be careful. It, it's not always... Um, the case that the coin has no usage beyond just you know being printed, but uh, we need to be careful in terms of studying. It's a case by case scenario, and this goes back to Jeff, like the Fed, right? The Fed gets criticized for printing cash just to stimulate the economy, but you know if you don't end up getting the the growth from the stimulation, then it becomes inflationary. If you do get the growth that's expected, then you can kind of think of it as the uh, the backing of each dollar that's printed ultimately gets justified. Uh, but if it, the growth doesn't happen, then it just creates an uh, inflation. So maybe that's the case with some of these coins as well. They're maybe putting the, uh, you know, the buggy in front of the horse. They're kind of reversing it. They're first you know, creating inflation, ultimately hoping the landscape or the ecosystem grows to such a point that the, the coins actually are justified in their, their, their new valuation. Um, is that kind of, would you say that there, there's some, some level of kind of similarity there between, yeah, you know, I think there's some yeah. level because especially, um, how these protocols grow now is they bootstrap a lot of their money by having such high emissions in the beginning, having these extremely mm. attractive APRs to lure people in, you know, to provide liquidity, to start buying the coin and giving them, you know, a little bit of, um, money in their treasury as a runway. 
And so, you know, a lot of the times you have to really study what you're buying and how these emissions affect and play into things long, long term. And, you know, not all emissions are equal as well. If you find something, for example, like when you are doing DeFi, right? We mentioned before, there are just a hundred thousand million different tokens. And you can effectively do DeFi and generate yield with any kind of asset. But not assets, not all assets are equal, right? Not all assets are valued the same way. Obviously, if you are doing DeFi with, you know, a stable coin like USDC, then you're not subject to the volatility of crypto so much as, you know, sometimes the stable coins will lose their peg. But, you know, it's much more muted than, say, if you were playing with, uh, you know, other cryptocurrency pairs that are fluctuating 10, 15% a day. And then you're subject to these compounding issues of now, if your yield is down, but, you know, the price is up, like, what does that mean for your overall, you know, PL? Like, what does that mean if your asset has gone up a lot in price, but, you know, your APY could have been better if you were, you know, doing some other strategy. So all these things you have to play, um, you have to keep mm. in mind, especially Very. because like different, different DeFi protocols. And as you're like diving into this listener, you'll find that there are many, many, many protocols. Um, they may give you rewards in different ways. You know, if you're getting your reward in their token, like you launched, let's say you got on some new decentralized exchange that just launched. And, you know, they're providing a very attractive APR for you to take your assets and provide liquidity um, on their decentralized exchange. So you go and do that. But like, you know, the token they give you could be a worthless token. Like it could be 2000% APR, but you could be getting this token that is just consistently inflationary and will just always drop in price as you're getting it to the point that, you know, maybe it's not even worth it to do so. Because sometimes these pools will have like a deposit fee or something. You know, you put it in and you pay them maybe 1% to join their pool. Um, but sometimes you don't even make up that 1% if the token they're giving you is kind of not worth the money that it's uh, that you're expecting it to be. But then yeah. again, sometimes if you're on other protocols, you know, the fees they pay you might be in the native token that you put in. Which in that case, you know, if you're bullish on that token long term and you put it in one of these DeFi protocols where it's just yielding you more of that token that you are bullish on anyway, uh, you know, then that's a different story. And then you can like really um, see the advantages and benefits of it. I, I think back to our first episode where Jeff um, mentioned to our listeners that, hey, you know, we're not going to be hawking some coin. We're not going to be promising, you know, 10x, 100x. Um, and I think you get a sense of our style now um, that, you know, we're not um, if you want to make money in this space, you got to do your homework. Um, and it's, uh, you know, there is no quick, easy way. I mean, certainly you could uh, get lucky sometimes you could have like the right call directional wise. Uh, but especially what Jeff is saying now, um, you do. I mean, there are a lot of nuances. Uh, there is a bit more research. Um, and I think part of the reason that we are in the weeds on this, uh, Jeff, much more so than me, and I'm kind of getting started, but I'm kind of trying to catch up, is that um, we are passionate about it. We're interested and we think, um, you know, it, uh, as there's more variety, more Lego blocks to play with, uh, there's more ways to express our views on the markets, 
Uh, there's more ways to earn these kinds of yields that uh, Jeff is talking about. But yes, there is no easy way. So if you tune into the podcast um, and you think that there is, uh, you know, I would almost say that if people tell you there's an easy way to make money, I'd be cautious against that. Uh, because after all, uh, you know, all yield is not created the same. All tokens are not created the same. And all APY certainly Right. Just because one place says 2000 percent APY and another percent says 20 percent APY uh, does not mean. Right. Especially if the coin ultimately isn't worth anything. So, Jeff, um, I wanted to just to kind of, um, you know, take uh, a step back so we can uh, kind of structure uh, what we discussed today so far. So first, Jeff started off talking about maybe perhaps the most basic and straightforward, which is you can earn yield through staking um, and then. Um, which is part of securing the network. Um, and the next step is you can earn yield by providing liquidity in decentralized exchanges. Right. So, so both, let's, let's talk a bit yeah. about that and what that means, yeah. right? Yeah. So if you fire up your favorite decentralized exchange, you know, whether it be if you're on Avalanche, it would be Trader Joe XYZ. If you're on, uh, if you're on Solana, it would probably be, you know, Radium. If it's uh, Terra, you might be looking at, you know, either the Terra station um, swap app itself or or if in you're listening to this like in the future, it may be Astroport, you know, a next generation DX that's coming out on uh, on the Luna ecosystem very soon. But regardless of which decentralized exchange you're looking at, they'll all have something along the lines of pool you know, or add liquidity somewhere on the page. And what that does is it lets you then take any token pair and provide liquidity for it so that when someone is trading those token pairs, you will get a bit of their trading fee. So what do I mean by token pair, right? So let's say you have Ethereum and a stable coin like USDC. Um, you can then go, actually, I'm not going to use that example because I keep telling people not to use Ethereum. So let's say you have Luna and um, UST, right? Let's say you want to provide liquidity for Luna UST pair. And you go to Terra Station, you go to their swap, um, swap part, and then you go to their pool. You add UST and Luna. And what you need to do is you need to take a 50-50 kind of position. You need to have half Luna and half UST in the US dollar value. Um, and when you do that, you'll kind of deposit it into the protocol and it'll give you the your Luna UST LP tokens. While you hold those LP tokens, um, you'll get a small percentage of the trading fees. Now, just holding the LP tokens, you know, you'll get a little bit of the fees. But the next step is to farm the tokens. And what that means is you take those LP tokens and you deposit it somewhere else. It could be in the same uh, in the same ecosystem, or it could be you know on a different protocol that's you know making their own farms and like we talked about earlier, like emitting their own tokens at really high rates. Um, whatever the case is, you know you take those liquidity tokens and you can do stuff with it to generate more yields. Um, so liquidity is just really important in the DeFi space because it's a, it's how people trade and swap their tokens. Without liquidity, you know, DeFi just kind of wouldn't be possible. So obviously people are rewarded for giving that liquidity. 
But there's a lot of things you have to be aware of if you're going to try to LP. You have to be aware of something called impermanent loss. Now, that's something you're going to hear about a lot as you dive into the DeFi space. It's something that's really, really tricky because what it means is because you went in there earlier with a 50-50 ratio, if one asset goes up in price while the other asset stays the same or even worse, goes down in price, then now the ratio of tokens you have in your pool is no longer 50-50. So when you withdraw your LP tokens and split them back into their base assets, the pool rebalance itself to have 50-50, which means you end up with less tokens than you had put in. So unless the APR was very high to compensate for that, you may end up losing money if you're not careful with liquidity providing. And that's why permanent loss is such an important thing to keep aware of. And one of the reasons why the safest LP pools are with stable coins or other assets that are somehow pegged in value to each other, you know, like BTC, like WBTC and REN BTC pair, you know, they those two are both pegged to BTC, so they shouldn't fluctuate in value too much and you wouldn't suffer a lot of impermanent loss. Now, the reason it's called impermanent loss is because the loss doesn't happen until you withdraw your LP tokens and turn them back into the base assets. So in theory, like as long as you wait until the ratio of the assets is right back to when you bought in again, um, you know, you won't have that same loss anymore. But yeah, I you know, think that's uh, something to be aware of. Uh, so Jeff just, um, you know, very clearly went through a, I would say, fairly complex concept that took me a while um, to get yeah, fully. I highly encourage, you know, you to just yeah. definitely check out um, videos directly talking about impermanent loss because it's a very complicated issue that's hard to wrap your head around the first few times. So um, maybe just um, kind of to start uh, at the beginning about uh, the liquidity mining. So my understanding of this uh, new kind of DeFi uh, potential is in addition to staking, right? We keep talking about staking. That earns, that's something that doesn't exist in traditional finance. That's something that if you want to just maybe be a bit more simplistic, um, you can earn yield. Another way to do it, uh, which also doesn't exist in traditional finance, is you can be a liquidity provider on an exchange. So our, I think two episodes ago, we talked about centralized exchanges like the Binance's, the Coinbase's, right? The Gemini's. Um, so those centralized exchanges, they do, uh, they match orders, right? Um, they have an algo. Uh, you place your orders to buy and sell and everybody does that. And so they're centrally clearing. Um, and uh, for decentralized exchanges, you can think of there is no Binance. There is no algo that matches um, the buyers right, and sellers. There's no instead. order book. There's no order book. And so instead, um, we... Yeah, they have what like, it's called the automated market maker. Correct. AMM, automatic market maker, which is actually just X times Y equals K. Um, and so they keep K constant and they adjust the levels of X and Y, and those are like the different assets. So again, I would read into that a little bit more if you have interest. I actually went through the mathematics of impermanent loss um, to kind of show why is it that as long as you have movement in X or Y, you will suffer impermanent loss. You will suffer. The, the, the loss is non-negative. It's always greater than zero. So again, um, I think for our purposes, we can just kind of intuitively say that uh, liquidity mining, 
um, is a way for you to earn yield because you earn a share of the trading fees. There's something like 0.3% fees that's charged every time somebody uses the decentralized exchange. So basically, you can think of it as I participate in a sushi swap or Uniswap. And then people like Jeff, for example, have provided liquidity. And so I need to pay to use this uh, to make the transaction happen. And then Jeff and his cohorts who have pooled into this um, are going to receive a portion of that. However, that portion may not be enough to cover in permanent loss, again, depending on the volatility of the assets. And SushiSwap or Uniswap, the, the DEX, may also compensate them with additional tokens of the exchange. So it's, um, it is definitely, uh, would you say, a more risky way to earn yield? It's such an important part of the space and kind of the foundation of DeFi, like liquidity and in general. But right, it is something that is not for not for someone that doesn't know what they're doing to start. You know, mm-hmm. it's something that's a little bit more advanced. You know, it's highly likely you're going to lose money because of impermanent loss unless you uh, are very careful. But then what about uh, Uniswap version 3? You were the one who alerted me to that. You were saying that um, that makes it almost a bit more simplistic for people who want to kind of not suffer in permanent. Or, or you said the, pro, the it's hard to use Uniswap, but then that's why, um, you know, there's like a Popsicle. That, yeah, um, so that kind of leads into the next layer of DeFi kind of yield products, right? So with all these DeFi Legos we've been starting to talk about, you can kind of start to see it's there's these things don't exist these things don't exist in a vacuum and they can kind of work together to ge- generate more yield um in aggregate so the next step from you know just these base level of liquidity providers and these kind of protocols giving their own yield are protocols that are combining strategies together or utilizing other protocols and optimizing them to capture fees um in a way that rewards their pools, you know, greater. Um, one of these examples is uh, Popsicle Finance, right? We've talked about it a few times, and that's why you were bringing up the Uni3, V3 kind of thing, where Uniswap has um, a V2 protocol that is extremely popular, and it's still widely used. But the reason it's widely used is because their V3 product is really complicated, and um, if you really don't know what you're doing when you're setting, you know, the parameters that you're providing liquidity for in V3, then you um, are more than likely to lose money. And so there are projects like Popsicle Finance and UniPilot that aim to kind of optimize your LP position for you. So you give them your LP tokens and then they will algorithmically rebalance your positions, you know, Set new uh, fee parameters and everything for you so that the fees that they're capturing is being optimized at all times. Um, and, you know, that's just one of the examples of these so kind is it of... risky or less risky? The, the purpose of these <laughs> is to reduce the chances of permanent law, impermanent loss. Is that a uh, correct understanding or is it to... Uh, correct, correct. So, so, there's, mm-hmm. so it's, it's interesting you bring that up. So there's one thing on... On risk, right? So it's de-risking your chances of impermanent loss if you're using something like Popsicle Finance, which is kind of optimized for that. But because it's a DeFi Lego block, right? Because you're now using multiple pieces together, 
that does also make your security weaker because now if one of the things fails, that creates an issue where now your your you know your DeFi Lego tower is now like a DeFi Jenga tower and it might just fall down. And we've seen that happen in DeFi, which is why DeFi is a space you have to be a lot very careful in. You know, you want to like vet the contracts you're in. Um, if it's kind of a new thing, you want to make sure you're not putting in too much money, not like nothing more than you're comfortable with, because sometimes hacks do happen. And we talk about Popsicle Finance, but Popsicle Finance was hacked like several months ago um, due to one of that very like those very issues. And it is something that. Um, is just kind of a reality in this space. But like you said, because it's a new space, because all these risks exist, you can be kind of proportionate reward, proportionately rewarded for undertaking those risks. Okay. So how about for the um, uh, le slightly less adventurous or slightly more risk averse? Um, yeah. So I think like, you know, if, if uh, listen, if you want kind of an actionable item to really dive into using DeFi and stuff without you know, too much risk without, you know, having impermanent loss, without dealing with all these different concepts of um, risky protocols, you know, you're use, using something that's well, well respected and well vetted would be Anchor. You know, we've talked about Anchor a few times, but I really think it's one of the best ways to get your feet wet into DeFi because you're dealing with US dollar, stablecoin, right? Terra USD. You're dealing with a protocol that costs cents to use like compared to Ethereum. And you know, it's fast and you're earning 20% APY on their savings, you know, their earned product. It's nothing to scoff at and it's, you know, it's real money that you're making um, in a relatively risk-free way, in a relatively simple way. And um, it's kind of the perfect onboarding tool, I think. So um, when Jeff first uh, introduced me to uh, the Terra network, um, I, uh, I mean, again, I was very intrigued, obviously, by the 20% stable coin. I did a little bit more research. And so maybe I want to ask a more fundamental question, Jeff. So um, the whole Terra network is uh, kind of pinned on UST, right? Um, US Terra. It's, so again, listeners, it, uh, careful that this is not USDT, right? So um, USDT is a stable coin. Um, there's a whole slew of them. There's uh, the better known ones are USDT. Uh, T stands for Tether. Um, there's uh, USDC, uh, where the C stands for Coinbase. There's like BUSD, where the B stands for Binance. But all of these are basically, uh, you can think of it as stable coins um, that serve a kind of, you can think of it, there's a central authority that kind of verifies or, or ensures that the peg is kept um, to, you know, one-to-one uh, -to, -one to the dollar. But then you have something like UST, which is algorithmically kind of determined. Um, and it's balanced with Luna, this idea that you can always offer one UST, um, uh, one UST and you can get one dollar's uh, worth of Luna. Um, so if there's ever a, a fluctuation from that, arbitragers can come in and close that gap because the system stands ready to buy or sell Luna Okay, and to honor the one dollar peg, so is that better than? Uh, clearly, I know Jeff's answer. I suspect, of course, it's better. But why is that better for our listeners than USDT or you know USDC? Um, so I mean, who are, yeah. 
Yeah, so like USDT, USDC are definitely the giants in the stablecoin space right now, along with along with DAI is a decentralized option. But like the reason they are is because they have um, kind of this first mover advantage where Tether was really the only stablecoin for a long time. And it really used that to its va- advantage to kind of create this huge market share for itself, where on many, many exchanges, you know, especially... Um, less reputable ones, they use Tether as kind of a base trading pair, and it's become the default trading pair on uh, many, many centralized exchanges. Um, Now, the reason it's bad is because things like Tether and um, USDC to an extent, because they're centralized, you know, you're kind of at the whim of these companies. Tether famously has all this uh, negative sentiment around it because it just doesn't have transparent backing. You don't know exactly what is backing the value of one tether. The company just won't um, won't show, you know, in, won't allow independent audits of its finances and anything. The issue with yeah, USDC somehow. is kind of on the other opposite end where it's like it is transparent, but because it's like so transparent and working with regulators, it's now f- kind of flying in the face of the spirit of decentralization um, and, you know, some will say, yeah, you know, USDC, it's uh, government approved and will kind of have the market share. But, you know, that's what a lot of people don't want. A lot of people don't want a coin that's kind of tracked and, you know, audited by the government always. They want to be able to use these assets that they feel represent um, the true kind of decentralized nature of the space. So you think USDT, even though it um, refuses to let uh, auditors see their holdings. Somehow, it's still the dominant stablecoin in this market. People are still you. Um, are people aware that there is this controversy with it? I mean, oh yeah, I mean uh, the USDT yeah. like controversy mm-hmm. is is a tale as old as time in this space by now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's None been around. Yeah, it's been around but, since I got in the space, and it's the that same uh, that same fear has always existed. But you know, but nonetheless, like, it nonetheless, hasn't prevented people from using it. It hasn't prevented its adoption, and you know, it's come out several times with its own audits. You know, saying that it has the assets to back its claims. Um, but it's something that remains to be seen. And in the meantime, you know, these other stable coins are quickly gaining ground, especially UST, which is why, like, um, as a listener, I highly encourage you to just play around with it if you're interested in this space. You know, just See how um, how you feel like depositing money. Uh, the beauty of something like Earn is that uh, of Anchor Earn is that you know with UST the risk of losing money outside of a protocol wide hack is very small. You know you're not going to lose money to crypto's assets fluctuating. You're just going to see your USD value kind of go up in terms of the nineteen point five percent APY. Hmm. Um, so, uh, Luna is something that, um, again, I've, uh, since I gotten involved, I've become very, um, you know, very fond of, very passionate about, um, but there's still like a gnawing kind of feeling I have this algo, right. Uh, or the smart contract that balances Luna, um, the price of Luna and the price of UST. Um, what if it breaks? I mean, maybe that's almost too, uh too extreme a word i mean could it 
uh, not work in that? I mean, could there be um, an issue where, let's say people, arbitragers don't show up. Maybe they don't want, they don't care about Luna or Terra, you know, where there isn't this, people don't trust, um, you know, this, uh, this, this algo that, uh, because ultimately you require arbitragers to participate in this. Right. And that's how you achieve its stability. I mean, I think at this point, like that could have been something more of a concern earlier on. And of course, it'll always kind of be a concern because, like I said, like everything in this space is a kind of a new experiment. But I think at this point, you know, we've seen it work so well already to the point that I think something like a hundred and a hundred and forty thousand thousand Luna is burned per day or like a million and I had something really ridiculous amount of Luna is burned every day right now um, to, you know, match the demand for UST. And we see that having an effect on like Luna's price and everything. We see that UST has not lost its peg. Um, so as far as, you know, as far as it's happened now, the system has worked like as intended and it's created um, a real demand for both Luna and UST. Mm-hmm. So if there is more and more demand for UST, then there will need to be, um, I guess, more burning of Luna to balance yes. that out, right? And so the price, would could you attribute the uh, price action of Luna? I mean, of course, people buy Luna for other reasons, um, but it, there's part of it is also just the direct impact of the right less supply um, in order right. to... Just to, the, to the, okay. the scarcity of the, the burn is causing... Okay. Okay. Um, also wanted to um, talk a bit about, since we're on the topic of stable coins, there's another stable coin that's come to my attention. Um, and there's the, I don't know if algorithmically determined is the right category uh, to give it, but it's, uh, it's called um, a CDP, which is collateralized debt position. Uh, very diff- different from CDOs, which is what got uh, caused the financial crisis in 08. A CDP, collateralized debt position. So these are also kind of, um, uh, they're not centralized. So it's not USDT, it's not you know USDC, mm-hmm. uh, but it is created by the over-collateralization um, of, uh, of the coin. It also tries to stay one-to-one. And if it deviates from that, the algo kind of rebalances and whatnot. But how does, wh- why do we need that? Like, how do you see that versus... Uh, UST, for example. Right. So I'm, a, I'm assuming you're probably talking about MIM, which is like MIM probably, and Frax. Yeah, yeah MIM, MIM, and, and Frax. MIM and Frax are both probably the biggest uh, CDP uh, stable coins right now, and you know they are kind of a novel way and one of the new experiments, so to say, in the stable coin space to create something kind of to replace um, these centralized coins. And how I see them in terms of, uh, well, first, listener, like what they are, right? Let's give a little overview of what that CDP means. It means these coins are minted, they're created when the a user, like you or me, goes, takes our assets like Ethereum or, you know, any of these other assets that they may accept. We deposit it into the protocol as collateral and we take out a loan. You know, we take out a loan against this collateral. And that loan is in that collateral stablecoin, whether it be MIM or Frax. Both of these are different stablecoins, listeners. I'm sorry if it's already confusing with all these terms. But both of them are, are um, 
these CVP stablecoins, right? So you take out a loan. Let's say I put in $100,000 worth of Ethereum and I take out a loan for you know, $50,000 worth of MIM. Now the protocol has that collateral in it to back the MIM that now kind of is, exists out in the world. You know, I can go spend that MIM on other things. I can go take it, um, trade it for USDC, sell it on Coinbase and have real fiat from it. You know, this is real money I can use from this loan. Um, but like I have to pay it back one day. I have to pay back that loan in MIM to get back my collateral. Otherwise, you know, the collateral is just stuck in there to back the uh, existence of the stablecoin. And if the price of the collateral drops, like the market price of Ethereum just starts tanking one day to the point where, you know, it goes below the value of my loan. Um, well, not exactly. The, the value of my loan plus the liquidation price of my loan. Then, you know, I get liquidated. Then my collateral automatically gets sold for stablecoin to repay the loan. Um, and, you know, that's how it keeps the... The balance of the stable coins and the uh, the it keeps the uh, the peg to the dollar with these loans, and I think it works fairly well. It's a fairly novel way of uh, you know making but sure that the stable coin is pegged. How does it keep? Yeah, so maybe walk through the mechanism a little bit more because um, you know the one to so if it goes above, let's say it goes to dollar oh five, let's say mem, right? Um, what is the mechanism to ensure that it goes back? to a dollar who's selling i understand the collateralization part um but it seems like there needs to be another mechanism for it to maintain a one-to-one -one ratio with usd is there another uh is there another I mean, aspect there i i don't know it off the top of my head and it will be something it should be something i'll look into later but um yeah there's definitely some way for it to balance itself the other way around which is why like MIM has stayed relatively stable as a, you know, stable coin and Frax as well. Um, mm -hmm. I hope again for, as a listener, um, you know, we're not trying to overwhelm you. Um, I certainly, that, that's not the point. It's just that we, uh, we just love talking about this stuff. And one thing leads to another, as you can see. And, and I hope you can, as a listener, even if maybe um, some of this stuff is uh, over your head, uh, some of it is confusing, some of it you don't believe in, Ultimately, we're trying to paint a picture that there is so much in this space that you can explore that I think you will find something that, uh, you know, oftentimes in my uh, reading of this stuff, it's like new stuff comes up. Like when I was reading about stable coins, I didn't realize that there was this thing called UST. Uh, but then once I studied up on UST, I didn't realize that there's another type of stable coin, you know, the, the collateralized that's created by these collateralized positions. And then... Then you go into like, um, you know, obviously MIM um, and FRAX are used in uh, kind of different protocols. Well, what are those protocols? So, um, yeah, I, I so innovative. It, it would just this would never happen, I think, in traditional finance. I mean, there are elements. I think the skeptical people in our audience or, you know, among our listener group may say, oh, you know, we've seen it, done that. You know, um, there's all this kind of they, they call the ABCs. Right. Meaning um, there's all these, uh, you know, there's asset backed securities, ABS, you know, MBS, mortgage backed securities, CDOs, CLOs, all these alpha, the alphabet soup. Right. Um, of these structures. And it's all the same thing. Um, I would ask I would ask those who uh, have that view to read a bit more into 
um, you know, what these structures actually are in DeFi space. There's some similarities, certainly. Some of it is motivated by what we already have in traditional finance, but a lot of it is not. And I, yeah, I think I want to... completely new and just, you know, yeah. new ideas being built that have never, never been built before. And it's because of the technology that enables some of this to happen. It's because there's this decentralized and trustless aspect to it. So again, I think, you know, for those who are interested in more details, certainly, um, you know, we, we will cover a lot of this also in future episodes. But for those of us, for those of you who, you know, kind of is uh, just you know, is getting into it, I, I hope you can appreciate the breadth and the width of um, a lot of this uh, stuff that we're talking about. Um, okay, so we've... So let's say we've gone from DEXs, we've talked about um, liquidity mining, we've talked about staking. What are some other ways you earn yield, Jeff, for your portfolio? So, um, like more broadly on the staking thing, right, there's different kind of, uh, like some protocols will allow you to stake and earn yield without really securing the network because they're trying to have you participate in the network in some other way, right? And that's what I mean where like staking is kind of a broad term. Um, there are a lot of projects that are known as like launchpad projects, for example, where they encourage you to hold their token and stake their token on their platform, not to really earn a lot of reward or, you know, secure their network. But as a staker, you know, you're offered all these um, like perks, almost like benefits. You know, you might have the opportunity to participate in a in a project's token sale um, because you staked this other token on that launch pad, right? So these are all things that they try to do to create utility, to encourage people to have their tokens staked in the network and locked in um, and like have their value you know, but, but tied up with their network. But ultimately, Jeff, you need to find a use case for these. It needs to be an ecosystem or network that people want to participate in, right? Yes, so it's yes. just that they're asking you to trust that we will kind of figure it out uh, maybe a little bit later, uh, or, you know, there's this trust aspect. I mean, not to say that there's anything wrong with that, because I, I see in traditional, you know, world, uh, there also is, I mean, what is VC um, funding, right? A lot of it is also trust, right? It's, you know, if you can finance um, our objectives, right, then it makes us easier to reach those objectives. Right. So there is, yeah. So there is that aspect. Um, because, for example, um, one of the strategies uh, that, you know, um, Jeff mentioned, or not in this podcast, but uh, in one of our previous conversations, is like a delta neutral strategy on this mirror protocol. Won't go into the details necessarily, but it's this idea that you can earn yield uh, by borrowing and lending. Um, and it's like, wait, how does that happen? Well, it turns out that on the borrowing leg, right, um, you're being subsidized with uh, the mirror MIR token. So I guess you are trusting that there will be a use case for MIR. Um, just off the top of your head, what are the ways in which, why is it that I would want to hold uh, these tokens? Um, you know, that what, what, it, what else are they doing um, to make it more attractive for me to want to hold them? It's a great uh, question, you know, because... Yeah. Um... That is kind of a major question a lot of these pro protocols are trying to tackle. Like, what, why do you want to hold their token? You know, it's, anybody can just print a token and say, hey, like, you know, use our thing. You'll get our token. But if that token fundamentally doesn't do anything, then why hold it? You know, what is the value in it? Um, and, you know, protocols are approaching this in different ways. 
Um, a thing you might hear about is how, oh, everybody has like a governance token. And, you know, that's kind of overplayed because ultimately like, you know, governance is fine. You can control how the protocol develops and vote on things. But is that like really a valuable thing that makes you want to hold it? You know, questionable. So a lot of these tokens are trying to find interesting and novel ways. And, you know, we're going to we're going to circle back to terror again, you know, just because I uh, I think what they've done is really interesting and novel with how they uh, grant value to their token holders. So a lot of the protocols in their ecosystem, when you hold their governance token and you stake their token for governance, um, which listener is another, you know, thing that falls under the broad umbrella of staking, um, you know, locking up your tokens to participate in, um, you know, voting for how the how the protocol develops and everything and getting kind of rewarded for that. That's another way to stake. But anyway, so like a, a how Terra's ecosystem does it, like Anchor, um, like Pylon and everything else, is when you stake it in their ecosystem, they will give you airdrops of their tokens from other projects, you know, um, like ANC. I have my ANC from Anchor's uh, Borrow staked in their governance. And because I'm staked in there, I'm getting airdrops of other tokens. Um, and that's just kind of one of the, interesting ways that this ecosystem has created value for their token holders, you know, as an incentive for token holders not to drop um, and just sell the token right away. Um, but, but I see the, I mean, um, I'm going to wear my kind of more critical hat on, but the airdrops are for other tokens. And so then the um, idea is that these tokens are worth something, right? So ultimately it is still, um, I mean, for, for those who are a bit more critical, like where does this, where's the value generated? Where is for the- For sure. And that's the that's yeah. definitely the fairest criticism. Like this, once yeah. again, is the criticism of all this stuff is happening. All this economic activity is happening for the sake of economic activity. And, you know, that's why I think this will really tie in well with our next episode on the metaverse and what that means for, you know, value being added into the space what it means, you know, with the advent of NFTs and ownership of digital assets and what that kind of implies for what Web3 and like ownership really means, you know. Um, so I'd be excited to explore that in our next episode um, as we kind of dive into what, uh, you know, more broader aspects of how these assets are bringing value and creating um useful you know yeah you know i know i've pushed with the question of you know what are the applications but at the same time um if you've heard my earlier uh, kind of podcast or earlier podcast where you know for me i also believe that we shouldn't just if we just fixate on um oh hey you know what's the use case there what's the use case there um a lot of new technologies a lot of innovation doesn't happen that way um there is a balance of course that you know you shouldn't just be, uh, you know, airdropping everything. You shouldn't just be handing out inflating your coins and then just asking people to trust you with like a blank page, a uh, blank piece of paper. Um, but I do think that as the community grows, and this is why I keep uh, talking about uh, user adoption, um, the system will evolve. Um, this is kind of how I, I truly look at, you know, any new technology or ecosystem or community. As there is more adoption, the business model will evolve. The opportunities to monetize uh, will evolve. Of course, 
Um, that is speculative. And that is the nature of this industry. It's speculative. And that's why there's so much to talk about. Um, and people have all different views. So I would just ask, um, you know, those who are extremely skeptical to just kind of balance that with um, if something does have incredible user adoption, it's something that, you know, we should be paying attention to. Um, you know, it's something like, uh, like, for example, the metaverse, which I'm super excited to talk about for our next episode, just because it's very topical, but also it will tie in with some of the concepts we discussed in this episode. Um, well, I mean, the metaverse, guess what? I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of one of those things because there's so much interest in it, so much money going into it. There will be a lot of development happening in that space. So games like Axie Infinity, I've heard that it's kind of like a boring game to play, you know, um, or there's other um, kind of uh, maybe decentralized mana. You know, it's kind of, you know, what, what are we buying there? Um, you know, the interface doesn't work that well. Uh, well, all these are, um, you know, if you follow these projects, there are revamps. There, there, you, know, the, you know, there's different versions that are going to be um, kind of released. And so it is... Yeah, it's exciting. And I would encourage our listeners to, to just follow um, and to kind of have an open mind uh, when you, uh, you know, explore the space. Totally. Um, I guess to f recap everything, right? Um, if you're a new user, you know, definitely encourage you to check out the Anchor protocol as kind of your first step and your first uh know for a second foray into the world of crypto you know it is not scary to use very very intuitive um and you know the yields they get for you that 19.5 percent believe it or not is quite sustainable because it is how they've designed their protocol to be to have their you know two products the borrow and the earn side kind of complement each other provide um to provide the money for their yields and so it's kind of a great great way to get your feet wet and learn more about the space and get yourself more comfortable using uh, different DeFi uh, protocols. Yeah. And also just uh, maybe, you know, if you're on an exchange already, um, stake, you know, just press the button that says earn, you know, stake some of your, uh, some of your holdings. Right? I just also um, would want to be aware, yeah. you know, we got to just stress the security of all this stuff, right? Like yeah. DeFi is also always scary and it's kind of a, kind of a scary place to navigate you know you don't want to lose your coins or anything so just be careful okay. every time um and also even with the the these centralized um earn products you know understand those yields that they're getting for you are coming from DeFi. so you know they're also exposing you to that risk they're just taking you know they're just skimming a bit off the top to pocket the difference between what they end up paying you so you know Correct. recognize like the the level of risk that um you are willing to subject yourself to when you're chasing these yields in this space. Correct. Correct. So you can um, either for simplicity purposes, you know, just stake it with the exchange that uh, is offering the service uh, that saves you a few clicks, or you can move that coin right to your wallet um, um, and stake it directly, right. Uh, by yourself. And then, you know, you choose a validator uh, delegated, um, and then kind of manage that process yourself. And so then uh, you would get the full yield from the, uh, the, the staking process. Uh, but again, um, I would just encourage you, again, to study up on this space. Uh, and as Jeff said, um, you know, we're, we're not you know, necessarily, uh, we're definitely not hawking, you know, any coin or any investment. Um, it's more of uh, if you want to learn, if you want to study, 
yeah. uh, one of the I think one of the, the really helpful ways to do it is just to play with the machinery so that you're comfortable with these clicks. Um, exactly. Comfortable sending stuff to different addresses, you know, that have they're like forty digits long. Um, and yeah, and uh, hopefully this journey is, you know, makes you money of, um, but hopefully this journey is also a learning process and you'll find what you enjoy. And maybe you find that the end DeFi is not your thing, which is fine too. Right, Jeff? Is that okay? It's a, of course, you know, not, <laughs> not for everybody, but you know, hopefully you just find like the space interesting, you know, and you stick around because even if DeFi is not your thing, the whole crypto space is just so exciting. And as as the advent of NFTs and gaming and, you know, everything comes around, it's not just like finance anymore. You know, I, I admit like I'm not a finance guy. Like DeFi didn't exactly jive with like my excitement levels right at the beginning either because, oh, great. Like I can get yield on coins. It's not exactly something that, you know, makes me super excited every day. But the crypto space is only getting, you know, bigger. It's encompassing more and more things in our digital world so i hope you stick around even if DeFi is not your thing i'm sure something um in this place will just kind of spark your interest well said well said thanks jeff that for another awesome uh, you know i feel like the last few episodes we had you know the uh previous one on layer one layer two and this definitely a bit more on the technical nature um and uh but i think it's necessary to uh yeah, go a little bit in depth it, is the, it is kind of the nature of the beast right like um, we're going to try to keep it at a language and level that's not too crazy or complex. But unfortunately, sometimes you just got to talk about these kind of weird terms and weird esoteric ideas. Uh, this is this is another another uh, fun conversation. Jeff. Um, yeah, yeah, it was great. Let's uh, let's, uh, let's do it again. Um, the next one is I think Jeff already announced on Meta. So we hope you uh, tune into that one. Yeah, as always, Will, it was a great time. Looking forward okay. to talking again. Okay, I'll let you run. Take care. All right, take care.